It is our great desire for you to receive our praise, for you are worthy. For there was no one worthy in heaven and earth to open the scroll, but the very Son of Man, the one who was slain for us, even before the foundations of the world. So, Father, we come to give you praise, and we pray even now that you would open up our eyes to see all that Christ has done, so that we can know how worthy he is of our praise. Father, now enable us to listen and to believe. Overcome any resistance that we might have to believe. Holy Spirit, work in us that we might know the truth and be set, therefore, free from anything that would hinder us or bind us or keep us from believing and coming to faith and persevering in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn please to 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. I want to read really just verses 23 through 26. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. Hear the word of God. For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to take up today just verse 25, really just the first sentence of verse 25, which is in the same way also he, that is Jesus, of course, after supper saying, took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now the reason that I'm at this particular sentence in the scripture is because of the theme that we have been considering in these last number of weeks as we prepare for Easter Sunday, uh, that theme being the passion, the work of Christ. Remember, my premise is this, that that Christ died and how Christ died are facts of history that are observable and we are able to read about them by those who made the observation, read about them in Scripture, they're recorded elsewhere even in history. But why Christ died, that is the reason for which he died, what he accomplished in his death, well, that is a fact of history. It is not observable, but known to us by revelation. Not known to us by observation, but known to us by revelation. If you would see Jesus, if you would have been there and seen Jesus die on the cross that day, you would have seen that he died and how he died. But the reason for his dying, why he died, what he was accomplishing in his death, needed to be revealed to us. And he came back after his resurrection, of course, and, and revealed the purpose of all of this. The scripture reveals it to us as well. And so that's what we're operating under. So you remember a few weeks ago we began with a passage in, in Romans uh, in chapter 3, talking about the, 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 the death of Christ, for instance, in verse 25, speaking of Jesus. We read, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, that is God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You remember that the Father's desire to save sinners. But that would be unrighteous. So the Son, because he loved his Father, agreed to come. And to take the sin of sinners upon himself, to take the penalty for that sin upon himself, so that his father could be righteous in saving sinners. So that his father could be just and also merciful. Just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And he did it, the scriptures say, by his blood, because his blood, his death, was a propitiation. Meaning, an atoning sacrifice. Meaning that it canceled the debt of our sin and 
fully satisfied or assuaged or exhausted or extinguished God's righteous wrath against us. And so, there would be no case against those for whom Christ's blood covers their sins. So the Son was pleased to come. And the Father, the Scripture says, was pleased to crush Him. It was the Father who sent the Son to the cross. And it was for the Father's glory and righteousness that the Son died. Then we move from there. And we move to John chapter 17, 17, which describes for us that great intimate prayer of Son to Father. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this in the middle of verse 1 there. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So as Jesus goes to the cross, his intention, his purpose is to satisfy the mission that his father had given him. And the mission that his father had given him was to give eternal life to all those whom the father had given him. Now the father had delineated that and we read about that in scripture. Uh, They're called the elect or the ones the father has chosen. They are what's referred to in other passages as the many. They're referred to as the church. They're referred to as the people of God. He will save his people from their sins. They are the ones who were foreknown by the Father, who were predestined by him, who would be called, who would be justified, who would be glorified. Those very same ones, they are the ones who would believe. As Jesus came to the cross, he had no intention of being a propitiation, canceling the debt of sin, and assuaging the wrath of God for those who wouldn't believe. He had no intention of including them in his atoning sacrifice. For all he atoned for, all his blood was a propitiation for, would be saved because they would be the ones whose debt would be canceled and whose the the Father's wrath would be assuaged. So Jesus' intention, as he goes to the cross, is to fulfill this mission. To give eternal life to all those the Father had given him. Then last week we realized that what this would mean is that a reconciliation would take place because of the blood of Christ. For instance, as George was preaching last week, Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, the death of his son brought reconciliation. And when we talk about reconciliation, we mean there must have been hostility or, the big word, enmity between the two parties. There was something that separated them. And this wall between us and God was built by both God and us. On the one hand, God removed himself from us because of our sin and his holiness. He cannot receive us. And so, there was separation from God's perspective. And the only way that that separation could be overcome was by the blood of Christ. Thus, Christ came, those the Father had given him, and he, in his blood, therefore, was that propitiation. Thus, it brought God towards us. But yet, on the other hand, there's a separation because of us and from our perspective. And that because of our sin. The very nature of sin means that I want to rebel against God. That I want to move away from God. That I do not want to draw near to God. That I want to go my way, not His. And so, for us to be reconciled, for Jesus to be successful in His mission, He must do two things. One, He must satisfy the debt of our sin. He must satisfy the wrath of God on the one hand. He does this by his blood. But he also then must guarantee that we believe. He must guarantee it. Because if we don't believe, then he will fail in his mission. He will fail, you see, to bring those the Father has given him eternal life. So today what I want to concentrate our attention on is that the blood of Christ bought a new heart for us. Bought a new spirit for us. Bought even our faith to believe. Now the reason I do this is because, A, I think the Bible does this. 
Secondly, because I think as we grasp this, it will deepen our appreciation, our love for God himself. We will appreciate him more. We will love him even more. The assurance that we have of our own salvation will increase as we understand that it's God who brought it. It's Christ who bought it. Uh, Our hope for others will increase as we realize that he bought this for many. And thus, as we share our faith, we'll have good hope that Christ who saved us will save others as well. And most especially today, I want us to be able to see that the very faith which we exercise, the very faith which we use, if you will, that we that operates in us in order to receive the very blessings of God, the very blessing of our salvation, that very faith is not a self-generated, self-determined, self-willed virtue, but it's a blood-bought gift. And when I say a blood-bought gift, I mean that it's more costly and more precious than we could ever imagine. And thus, even as we live by faith and exercise faith, it should be with great amazement. It should be with great joy. It should be with great gratefulness to God. Because we realized how precious, how costly, even that faith is. And if we're not grateful for it, if we're not thankful for it, then we dishonor the very cross through which he was bought. Alright? That's where I'm headed. Because you see, Christ was successful. He knew that he would be successful. This was not a risky enterprise on the part of Christ to come. For instance, in John in chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. No doubt. He knew that he'd come to give eternal life that all the Father, to all those the Father had given him. But he also knew they would come. Verse 37, he said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. He was perfectly confident in his mission, Jesus was. Verse 39, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up. On the last day, Jesus is perfectly confident that he's going to be able to glorify his Father, vindicate his Father's righteousness, make a propitiation for sins, and draw a bring, make certain that all those for whom he dies, all those the Father had given him, will in fact come. John chapter 10, for instance. In verse 27. Very confidently, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of, my, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He said, here's my confidence. My confidence is that the Father has given all of these to me. All of these ones whom he will Save. He's given them to me. And no one's greater than my Father. So if He's given them to me, then they're safe and secure in me. And, and, and the Father and I are one, therefore they're safe. And thus I know they will hear my voice. And I know they will follow me. And I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. I have no doubt about that at all. Because I've come on this mission, on this particular mission, to give eternal life to all those the Father has given me. And thus, they will come. They must or I'll fail. So they'll come. They'll hear my voice. They'll follow. I'll give them eternal life. Just like I'm supposed to. Just as defined by my mission. They won't perish. In fact, no one, nothing can snatch them out of my Father's hand. They're safe and they're secure. That's the mission, you see, of Jesus. That's why he comes. Therefore, in addition to being a propitiation, that is, to satisfy the wrath of God for the sins of these very ones, Jesus must also guarantee, secure, that they will believe. Thus this phrase, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. You see, it can't be left to us to come on our own. 
The scripture is clear about that. Let me read you. This little sheet is what I call my sin verses. You know these. I quote them to you all the time. I've added a few more. Listen. This is the human condition. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis chapter 6. Sin happens in Genesis chapter 3. We see from that point on murder, injustice taking place, so that by Genesis 6, just a few chapters later, just a few chapters into the Bible, we find the summary of God about the human condition and that, that the thoughts and inclination of their hearts, of our hearts, the problem is in the heart. The thoughts and inclinations of our hearts are evil continuously. There's, there's no break in it. That's simply the way that it is. Rebellious against God. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and, and desperately wicked, desperately sick. Who can understand it, he says. John chapter 3, Jesus speaks. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You see the difficulty that Jesus is confronted with. He can satisfy God's part of this, satisfy God's wrath, assuage his wrath, be a propitiation for our sins, and draw God near to us. But can we be drawn near to God? Can we come to him when our sin keeps us from not loving the light? When our sin causes us to have thoughts and inclinations which are against God, which are evil, continuously. John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That is, you can't get out of it. You're in bondage to it. You're stuck there. That's the very nature of your own heart. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We exchange the gloriousness of God for others. We worship other things, other people, even ourselves, to the expense of God. Romans 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. How devastating is that? If the gospel comes to us and says, follow Christ, our minds say, no. They're hostile to God. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But those are the very ones who need the word of the cross. And so how can those who are perishing ever come, you see? That's the difficulty. Jesus looks at the perishing people and he says his mission is that they don't perish. Well, he can, he can take away God's wrath, but can he draw them? Can they be guaranteed to come? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Sin doesn't make us stupid. It makes us foolish. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. These things are spiritually discerned. Intellectually, we can take a multiple choice test and pass on the gospel. But the question is, do we believe? Do we see ourselves in it? Do we understand our sin and our need for a redeemer? That's the question. That's what has to be overcome in us. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But see, that's exactly what they must see. But yet Satan has blinded these eyes. And so if Christ is going to be successful in his mission to give eternal life to all the world, then these blinds must, these eyes, blind eyes must be opened to be able to see. And if they're blind, who's going to open them? It must be done through the work of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all must lit, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Again the problem. 
It's interesting, however, that the Apostle Paul, who is a believer, writes that. So he knows there must be some power in the work of Christ that was able to open his blind eyes, free him from the bondage to his sin, change those evil, wicked inclinations in his own heart, give him life so that he is no longer dead, separated from life, the very life of God. So he must know that in Christ there is this work that changes. And so you see, if Christ's work is going to be successful, he must guarantee that those the Father has given him, described by these very verses, will come to him and believe. Thus the sentence, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The disciples on that night that Jesus was betrayed were around that table with him. When he said those words, they would hearken first, I suppose, to when those words were first first spoken. It was at Mount Sinai. You remember that God had freed the Israelites from Egypt, broken their bondage, had come and given them the Ten Commandments. Moses began to write some of that down, plus this, uh, some other laws that he had given as well in terms of how God would be worshipped. And then God said very early on in this process, bring a few guys and the elders of Israel, don't come too close, be at the base of the mountain. And then Moses, before them and before the people, read what he, re- what he referred to as the book of the covenant, that is the very promises of God. And then, he said, take and kill these animals and take their blood, half of it, put in a basin, the other half sprinkle against this altar, and then take the rest of this blood and sprinkle it on the people. And so he did. And as he did, he said, on God's behalf, this is the blood of the covenant. Because you see, covenants, promises, agreements were always ratified or confirmed or sealed by blood because it signified the very solemnness, the significance of this relationship, of the promises that were made. Basically, that you're binding yourself by blood. That is, if you dishonor the covenants, either party, you die. That was the point of the blood. And so, covenants were significant covenants, solemn covenants, were always ratified by blood. So, God ratifies this old covenant by blood. And it was a covenant that was written on stone and written in scrolls. And the covenant was essentially God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people, if you obey me, if you follow after me. That's what he said to them. But you see, there were various pieces of that could be broken down, not on God's part, but on the people's part. Because, you see, for them to obey him, they had to, they had to trust him. And they had to follow him. Because even when they sinned, God says, I understand that you're going to sin, but when you sin... Repent of your sin. Make sacrifice. I won't take your life. I'll take the life of another. I'll take the life of an animal. And yet still, they refused to repent. It could break down because there were priests that would mediate between the people and God. And if they were unfaithful, which they were, the covenant would break down. And there were prophets who were to come and teach the people and mediate the very word of God to the people. But if they didn't do that, then this covenant would break down. And there were kings that were supposed to to enforce righteousness among people. But if they didn't enforce this righteousness, if they weren't righteous themselves, then this covenant would would break down. But this was this was the covenant and the blood of the covenant where God swore Himself to it that if they would follow Him, obey Him, He would be their God. They would be His His people. But then also on that night, Jesus said, "This cup is the blood of the new." You see, the prophets had had begun to talk about a new covenant that would come, Jeremiah particularly. You can turn to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and begin there. Or you can turn to Hebrews and chapter 8 and verse 8. Because it's both there in Jeremiah and then in Hebrews. And I mentioned the Hebrews passage just to let you know that this is a new covenant that we understand to be applied now. It's what Jeremiah was looking towards. 
when he discussed it. So when Jesus comes and says, this is the cup of the new covenant, it was this to which he was referring. Again, you can be in Jeremiah 31.31, or I'm in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, he's bringing in this new covenant. Jesus says that his blood's going to purchase this new covenant. It's going to ratify, it's going to confirm this new covenant. Jeremiah had talked about it. He says it's going to be a new covenant, not like the ones, verse 9, in Hebrews 8, not like the covenants that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed them, showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. You see, the covenant broke down not on God's part, but on the people's part. So now a new covenant is going to come. And he says he's going to make it with the house of Israel and Judah. Most particularly, he made it with the one who would be the very Israel of God, Jesus of Nazareth. This very one from Judah who would represent all of the people of God. And you see, it would never break down then because Jesus would always be faithful to it. Notice what's in this new covenant, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. He's saying, listen, in this new covenant, this covenant that Jesus was going to bring in, this covenant that Jesus was going to purchase, this covenant that Jesus was ratifying, confirming with his blood, he said, here's what's going to happen in that covenant. Your mind and heart will change. It won't be simply written on a scroll or on a stone. But this new covenant will be embedded within your very heart. And that was great news because Jeremiah understood the heart. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 1, here's how Jeremiah defines, describes their hearts. He says, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. That's the problem. And when he says it's, it's written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, he means there's nothing that that iron and that point, that pen, can't penetrate. And so, written, if you will, permanently, on their heart is their sin. Jesus would refer to this. He said, it's not what goes in you that's the problem. It's what comes out of you that's the problem. Because what comes out of you is a reflection of your heart and the sin that's on it. And so now in this new covenant, this covenant that Jesus is purchasing with his blood, this covenant that Jesus is ratifying, confirming with his own blood, in that covenant comes not just a law written on stone and scroll, but a law that's written on the heart, so that the very inclinations of one's heart will be changed. The way that Ezekiel spoke of this is that he said that God would sprinkle clean water on us, and he would... Take out our heart of stone, the one that was written on with this iron pen and this diamond point. He would take out this heart of stone and he would put in a heart of flesh, a new heart. That is, he would give us a new spirit and put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. See, in this new covenant comes an inner work of the Holy Spirit that guarantees that our inclinations are towards him. So when Jesus is sitting with Nicodemus, he describes all of this to Nicodemus by saying, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of God until, unless, you've been born again. There has to be this inside job done on your heart. There has to be this inner work. And that's the work of the new covenant that Jesus is purchasing, ratifying, confirming with his blood so that it's guaranteed 
that these very ones whose sins are canceled, these very ones against whom the wrath of God is assuaged, these very ones will have a change of heart and their inclination will be new and they will come. In fact, the author of Hebrews, so convinced of this, ascribes this to the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 15, we read this. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord's, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The Holy Spirit says, yes, of course. This is what's going to take, this is what's going to happen. Because the Holy Spirit is the agent of this new birth. The Holy Spirit is the agent of this change in our hearts. He's the one who brings this new life to us. So we can see that in this new covenant, there's a guarantee of a change of heart. And of course, with this change of heart, draws a drawing near to God. Because when our hearts are changed and this resistance to, because of sin is overcome, then we believe, we come by faith. So Paul can write about our salvation in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. This, he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. He's saying, all right, here's how your salvation comes to you. It's a gift that comes by grace, the very grace of God, and you receive it by faith. Of course. But then he goes on. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So what is this and what is it? Well, the this and the it is all of it. That is, our salvation that comes to us by grace through faith. All of it is the gift of God that comes by way of the blood of Christ. So Paul could write in Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That is, believing in him has been granted to you. It's been gifted to you. It's been given to you on the basis of the work of Christ. And Peter could say, in 1 Peter in chapter 3, in verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, Jesus took our sins, the just for the unjust, for the purpose of bringing us to God. How could he do that? Well, because in his blood, he purchased, he ratified, he confirmed a new covenant. A new covenant that had the provision in it of a new heart. And it would spring everything from that new heart. And thus, with a new heart, warm towards God, we would be brought, we would come, we would seek, we would come to Him. Not only that, but in this new covenant we see the phrase in the middle of verse 10 in Hebrews 8, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No doubt about that. Well, how could God be so confident? How could He know that we wouldn't fall away in the same way that the people in the old covenant did? Well, because... The blood of Christ will have purchased the new covenant, a new heart, even a faith. And thus God would say, you'll persevere with me because of Christ. Because Christ will remain faithful to the covenant. And you are in him. In thinking of this passage, Jonathan Edwards wrote this. He said, I think the difference here pointed out between these two covenants lies plainly here. That in the Old Covenant, God promised to be their God upon condition of hearty obedience. Obedience was stipulated as a condition. Edward says, listen, in the Old Covenant, if they obeyed, God would be their God and they would be his people. In the Old Covenant, God promised to be their God upon condition of hearty obedience. Obe obedience that was stipulated as a condition, but not promised. 
in the new covenant, this hearty obedience is promised. He says, Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my ways. To trust in him. So you see, even our faith is blood-bought. Thus you see, if you see yourself believing, as you hear the truth about Christ, and you know that this faith is part of that which Christ has bought. And if you find yourself struggling, believing, it shouldn't surprise you. You should then confess your sin and say, Of course, it's my sin that's keeping me from Christ. Oh God, on the basis of Christ, in whom I've just now heard and still have not placed all my trust, would you please forgive me, overcome my sin, that I might too believe. Because our belief is not self-generated, not self-willed, not a self-determined virtue, but rather a blood-bought costly, precious gift. Jeremiah goes on. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. You see, the great problem in the old covenant is their teachers were unfaithful. But in the new covenant, our teacher is the Holy Spirit. Oh, and yes, he uses teacher people who open their mouths and speak. But the one who teaches, the one who speaks to this new heart is ultimately the Holy Spirit of God. And you remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer says he's going to give eternal life to all those the Father had given him. And then he defines it. And he says, this is eternal life. That they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's the new covenant. That's part of what Jesus was ratifying confirming, going to purchase with his blood that we would know intimately the Lord. And then he said, verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We'll be forgiven our sins. Now it was that night that Jesus was with his disciples, you remember. And he was celebrating that Passover meal. It would be the last Passover meal that would have any spiritual significance. Because he was going now to take that Passover meal to the place where God always intended it to be a ratification, a confirmation of God's promise of salvation in the Messiah, in Christ Jesus. Do you remember that on the night that he was betrayed, that very special night, he took the bread that was there and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body given for you. Now do you understand that when he said this and when he poured apart this bread, symbolizing his body which would go through tremendous pain, well, he would be rejected, he would be forsaken by his father. And when he was forsaken by his father, all hell broke loose upon Jesus. But when he did that, when he ripped that bread apart and we began to pass it to his disciples, that his intention, if you're a believer in Christ, was to give you eternal life. And he knew that. And then also he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he took this cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when he said that, he's saying, This blood is ratifying, my blood is ratifying the new covenant. It will purchase it. It will buy it. It will put it into effect. Do you understand that in that new covenant comes a new heart? Because that was always the problem with the old covenant. The old covenant worked on God's perspective, but, but, but people's hearts were not changed. 
And so he says, now this new covenant will come with a new heart. And that will enable you to follow. It will enable you to hear. It will enable you to to receive eternal life by faith and persevere in that faith. Do you remember that on the Day of Atonement when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he wore a breastplate. And on that breastplate were 12 stones, one each for the tribe, for each tribe of Israel. And thus when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he had upon his heart the people of Israel. Do you understand that when Jesus went into his Father's holy presence, he had you upon his heart as a believer in Christ. And he was taking his blood and with it, he was canceling the debt of your sin. He was assuaging his Father's wrath and he was purchasing the new covenant. And when he purchased the new covenant, he did so on behalf of all those the Father had given him. And thus for those, he purchased a new heart. For those, he purchased faith to believe. For those, he purchased persevering faith. For those, he purchased security so that no one could ever snatch them away. For those he purchased eternal life. And thus you see, he would not fail in bringing his Father glory. He would not fail in vindicating his Father's righteousness. He would not fail because he would make atonement for the sins of those sinners and cancel their debt. And he would bring them to God by faith. That should astound you as a believer in Christ. It should amaze you. You should never get over that fact. Every time you exercise faith, you should simply stand in awe and wonder that God, when you were dead in trespasses and sins, made you alive. And that life, that faith that brings that life directly to you, was blood bought, costly, precious. If you're not a believer in Christ, Jesus also died that we might make this declaration that God so loved the world that he gave Christ so that whoever would believe upon him would not perish and have everlasting life. And so you begin to think about that. And you think, am I one who has sinned against a holy God? Or have I been perfect? And if I've sinned against a holy God, what does that mean about me? It means that he should punish me. I should be condemned in his sight. That's true for us all. But then the question, can I put trust, faith in Jesus? And my question would be, why not? Who else could take the penalty of your sin and, and cancel its debt? Who else could purchase for you all that you need in order to come that would take away the deadness of your heart, the inclinations of your heart, and cause you to come to him? In fact, as those inclinations begin in you, don't you see it? Don't you feel it? Don't you understand it? That Christ is at work, and if so, trust in him. And then as you do, stand amazed in awe, worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we never take for granted certainly our salvation, certainly the forgiveness of our sins. But shall we never take for granted that amazing time when we believed and that amazing times as we continue to believe that we know that even this faith is so precious, so costly, for it's blood-bought. And may we be grateful from beginning to end our whole salvation before you. 
loved even as we follow you to know that was bought by the blood of Christ. Even as we are sure that we have eternal life that we know that was bought by the blood of Christ. And even as we know that nothing can snatch us out of your hand for we will continue to believe to know that that was bought by the blood of Christ. And even now I pray, Father, that you would set aside this bread and juice that's holy unto yourself and even to us that in it and through it we might encounter personally some for the first time, perhaps others again and again. We may encounter personally our Lord Jesus Christ whose blood has bought all that we need and secures our eternal salvation. Do that, I pray, that we would never again take for granted our inclinations towards you, our affection towards you, our desire for you, our seeking of you, even our faith. That we may always live in awe and wonder and gratefulness. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And He is here. And He invites all those who believe in Him. And you understand that it's only by virtue of His virtue, it's only by virtue of His blood that we know Him that we come to Him, that we believe in Him, that our sins are forgiven. If you believe that, I invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left, these two sections down the aisle to my right, come here, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you eat it and walk away from this table, be thinking, my faith is bought by the blood of Christ. Please hold. pray even now that you would seal to us all the benefits of this new covenant. Father, that we would know it's all from you because of the work of Christ from beginning to end. And that we would take confidence in that and, and live with great joy. That nothing, no one can snatch us out of your hand. And we've been purchased.